like you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to uh, use this passage kind of as a uh, anchor point for our study this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, I was thinking about it, how different this is from the way that I normally preach. As most of you know, I uh, typically like to uh, expound and exposit a passage of Scripture and focus on that and the grammar and what it means and all of that. And uh, when you're kind of teaching topically, you're sort of all over the place. That's not a bad thing. Biblical theology is bringing together all that the Bible has to say about a subject and putting it together into a cohesive unit and presenting a teaching, or uh, as the actual word is, a doctrine. People may be afraid of the word doctrine, but it simply means a teaching. We're teaching on the economy of God. And in the last uh, five weeks, this is the fifth, that we've been looking at this subject, I've tried to give a background to uh, the idea that God owns everything. We are, in fact, He owns us, and we are His workmanship, and we are uh, His creatures, and everything that we have in this world belongs to Him. It's on loan to us. He's the rightful owner. We are merely His managers, and in an amazing way, His partners in the, the oversight of this planet. And that's the backdrop for this. Last week, we considered the what and the why of giving. Uh, what are we supposed to give and why are we supposed to give it? And we looked at that and talked about the concept that a 10% first fruit offering is something that was recognized before the law and after the law. And it kind of uh, pervades Scripture as a principle of giving. This passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 kind of uh, serves as an anchor point. And what's actually going on in the context here is that the, the Jerusalem church has experienced a time of uh, famine and a time of economic downturn so that they are in real desperate need. There is severe poverty among the believers in Jerusalem. We have places in our world today that are very analogous to that. And the Apostle Paul has been uh, kind of collecting an offering throughout the churches of the rest of the Roman Empire. He's been collecting an offering with the idea of taking it to the believers in Jerusalem to help alleviate their suffering. So that's kind of the background. Beginning in verse 6, Paul gives us these words. Now this I say... He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written, He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only faithfully supplying the needs of the saints, 
but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So this morning I want us to consider in the extension of understanding our first fruits giving. What does the Bible teach about how and where we are to to give. And it actually begins in a very strange place, not with giving at all, but with understanding surrender and authority. Now, I will tell you at the front end this morning, I'm going to preach a message. I mean, we're in an election year, just a few more weeks. We're going to be going to the polls. Everybody's thinking about our democratic process, our electoral process. Well, I'm going to be talking about a process that is distinctively un-American. It's not democratic at all. It has to do with the authority structure that God has built into uh, his people that actually goes back to the Old Testament, to the priests and Levites, Moses and Aaron, and all that flowed out of that uh, declared order for the Israelites, and comes into the New Testament under the apostles and eventually uh, under the elders and deacons of the local assemblies, that God has a structure that is not necessarily democratic, although we'll talk about the particulars of it in a moment, but he has a structure under which we in the body of Christ live. And understanding the how and the where of giving includes understanding the importance of every single believer being under authority in the kingdom of God. No person is an island unto themselves. And anyone who tries to live their Christian life completely independent of the body of Christ is destined for failure. God has given us the body to guard us and to protect us, all of us. You know, I stand here this morning as a, as a pastor, and uh, by the constitutional definition of my role as the chairman of our board and president of our corporation, but I am under authority. I cannot act independently. And so we, we have to understand the authority that God has built into his body in order to understand this whole concept of giving. And we also need to understand the idea that giving is a surrender. It's an act of worship. And when you worship, you yield something. When you put a gift on the altar, whether it's yourself or your time or your resources, it's a yielding to God. It's a, it's a dedication. It's saying, Lord, I put this before you and I take my hands off of it. It's a kind of surrender. So when we look at the scriptures and we say, okay, where am I supposed to bring my first fruit offering and give it before the Lord? As you go through the Bible, and some of this is review, but you just pick up the idea, Abraham 
gave his tithe to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was recognized in that passage as a priest of God Most High. In other words, he brought it to someone recognized as an authority under God. The Israelites, when they got ready to build the temple in the wilderness, brought their offerings. And by the way, if you go back and look at that very carefully, it's kind of interesting. Um, All that gold and jewelry and stuff that the Egyptians gave to them was for a reason. (laughs) They were going to take it in the wilderness. What are you going to do with gold and jewels in the wilderness anyway? Well, they gave it to them, and as they went into the wilderness, that was the basis of the offering that was given to build the temple, or the tabernacle, and it was brought to Moses and Aaron, and laid before them, and distributed to the artisans and the various ones who would be involved in crafting the tabernacle. After the temple was constructed, and moving into the period of Solomon with the construction after the tabernacle, And then Solomon in the building of the temple and all throughout the Old Testament where the temple becomes the center of worship, the scripture is singularly clear that the tithes and offerings of the first fruits come to the temple. People bring it to the temple and from there it is distributed for the purposes of God's work. In the book of Acts, as soon as the church begins... and. A very peculiar thing happened uh, as the church began in Acts. When all of those people were converted, and they were powerfully and genuinely converted, there was a great disparity among them relative to individual status economically. Some people had a lot, and some people had nothing. The Middle East and, and Palestine in the, in the day of Christ, in the times of the first church, was like many places in the world today where there's virtually no middle class. There are a few people who have possessions, and there are a lot of people who live in virtual poverty. You saw that in the video. You know, this boy and his family lived at the garbage dump. And they went to the garbage dump every day. That was their work. They picked through the garbage to find what they might be able to resell back to people uh, in town to to get enough sustenance to live on. That's the kind of the way it was in Jerusalem. And so, in those early days, a very peculiar thing happened. Now, the Bible doesn't command this, but it was a beautiful thing that they voluntarily chose to live communally. And what they did was, many of them sold their property and their possessions, and they put everything they had in a common pool. And by doing that, they were able to redistribute the wealth so that everybody benefited equally from it. Everyone was taken care of. That was the goal. Well, people being people, and uh, it's kind of interesting to me that, that cultural difficulties have been around since the beginning, really, since the Tower of Babel, And they certainly manifested themselves in this beautiful, pure New Testament church very early when the Hellenistic Jews felt like we're not getting our fair share. You're not taking care of us. The the Palestinian Jews were getting what they needed and the Hellenistic Jews felt like they were being left out of of the equal distribution of wealth. And so a complaint arose. Now, the, the apostles 
I mean, this is the early church. They haven't developed any kind of structure, so to speak. So here's the apostles. There's 12 of them. By this time, if you do the math, there's more than 8,000 believers. So you can, you can kind of figure that out. And all of a sudden, there's a problem with the distribution of the common fund. These guys are trying to preach. They're trying to teach. They're trying to make disciples. They're trying to proclaim the gospel. And now they've got to worry about, did this person over here get as much as this person over here for thousands of people? And they said, this is not going to work. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we find in Acts chapter 6, that the office of deacon was instituted in the church specifically for the purpose of distributing the benevolence of the common fund. And the apostle said to the congregation, select from among yourselves seven men who are great accountants, good businessmen, have demonstrated uh, acumen in investment and resources, uh, and know how to handle annuity funds, right? No. <laughs> no, that's not in the Bible. No, they said, select seven men who are full of wisdom. Where does that begin? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Select seven men who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did they know that? Well, the... They watched their lives. They demonstrated wisdom and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and let them handle this distribution of the benevolence of the common fund so that we, the apostles, can devote our full attention to the ministry of preaching and teaching and prayer. That's what we need to be focusing on. We want to let the deacons administer the funds. And so, again, they were the stewards of those offerings and gifts that had been given in the common fund. As we move out of the book of Acts and into the letters of Paul and John and James, and we kind of get further into the New Testament as time moves along, we find that a structure evolves, uh, very much modeled after the synagogue, but led by the Holy Spirit in the development of the church, so that Paul, in the churches he started, went back through the area on kind of a second trip and appointed elders in every church. And the office of deacon rose in every church, and I think deaconess as well. You can read the Scriptures a couple of different ways in 1 Timothy 3, but I think it's well supported that there were deaconesses. And so... You have these people who were selected by the congregation. The elders were appointed. They had the spiritual oversight and the shepherding care of of the assembly. But the deacons and deaconesses were given the task of serving the body and caring for the financial concerns and the distribution of benevolence And all of that sort of thing. And all through the New Testament you find that people are bringing their offerings, their first fruits, to the spiritual authority within the local assembly. And that's where they're depositing it. Biblical giving is an act of worship 
and surrender. It is inherently a release and a dedication to God after which we have no control over the gift. Now, I want to talk about a phenomenon that has occurred in the last 20 or 30 years in the Christian church and kind of highlight a, a, a sort of a, I don't know, I want to call it a crisis. Maybe it's not a crisis. But we're faced with, with an interesting thing. A number of years ago in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and we're not immune to these things, we began to realize a decrease in support of the Great Commission Fund. Now, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Great Commission Fund is that common pool where money is given that supports the missionary enterprise. It pays the salaries of missionaries. It pays the travel expenses of missionaries. It takes care of the uh, offices and administration of places in foreign countries where we serve. It takes care of the national office that kind of oversees this whole kind of thing. And we begin to notice a decline. People were not giving to the Great Commission Fund. And the reason was that people have a hard time giving to support the mission of an organization. They want to see a person. They want to see a project. They want to buy a well in a village in a country. They do not want to support a mission that digs wells and evangelizes and builds hospitals and cares for orphans. They want to see the orphan. They want to see the missionary. They want to touch that missionary and see them personally and give their money to them. And so there came a, a kind of a changing focus in the Christian Missionary Alliance to say, let's begin to highlight specific projects because people relate better to those. In fact, many organizations have recognized the trend of the boomer generation and younger that they want to give to what they want to give to and it's got to have a heart tug or an emotional pull to them. It's got to stir something inside of them. So let's design our marketing in such a way that we can get people to release their cash to things that capture their imagination. There's a problem with that. The problem is when we give that way, it's all about what I like, what I want, what stirs me. It's all about me. It's not about coming under spiritual authority and recognizing the greater dimension of a balanced, spirit-led, hopefully, and may I say, non-emotional kind of investment. Talk to any mission organization whose missionaries are required to do deputation. You know what I mean by that? Each missionary goes out and raises their own money. They go to churches, they give their talk, they show their DVD, they excite the audience about what they're going to do, and they go raise their own money. 
Every mission organization that raises funds like that will tell you about a phenomena within that structure that is disturbing. The people who get the most support are the most charismatic. I don't mean that like Corinthians' gift of tongues. I mean they're the most charismatic. They are not necessarily the best missionaries. They're talented at getting you to open your wallet. They're not necessarily gifted and equipped at the ministry they do. We have known for a long time that candidates for missionary service, candidates for positions, are better selected through a process. And by the way, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, we have this process, as do other very solid, very stable mission organizations. In order to be a missionary with the Christian Missionary Alliance, you know what you have to do? Go volunteer, right? Take me, I want to go, I'm ready. I want to go to China. Okay, we'll send you, you seem to have a heart for it. No. Same thing with a pastor. You know, I think I'd like to be a pastor. I'm going to go to a local church and I'm going to start preaching. Give me one. No. We want to see your life. We want you to commit yourself to a course of training so that we know that you are well-founded biblically. We want to observe your character. I, I just sat in a whole day of meetings with our vice president of church ministries, and the thing he kept emphasizing in the selection of candidates and, and the licensing and ordaining of candidates is character, character, character. We want to be able to observe your character. We want you to be properly trained and equipped. We want you to know what you're getting into. We want to see if your call stands the test of time. Was it just a flash in the pan, or is it a commitment to a vision that God has given you to go and invest yourself and your life in something? And so when a pastor or a missionary gets to that point where they're ready to be credentialed, having spent some time in training and development, they come before a licensing committee and they are interviewed. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your spiritual walk. Tell us about your devotional life. Tell us about your relationship with God. Tell us about how you came to know the Lord. Tell us about how God called you. Talk to us about Scripture. Do you believe the lost are really lost? What do you believe about the Bible? Who is Jesus Christ? Talk to us about your life. Okay, you seem to be doing pretty well here. We would like you to serve for a year or so, two years, in a local congregation, because when you come back to get that consecration ordination certificate and we actually put you on a plane and send you somewhere, we want the leadership of that local church to write references as to your character, your gifting, your anointing, and the demonstration of your ministry. We want to know that you have demonstrated your life in front of people here at home before you, we put you in a pressure cooker in a foreign culture, learning a foreign language, you know, 8,000 miles from home. We want to know that you know 
that God has called you there, and that your life has demonstrated the test of time. And so there's a, there's a process, there's a structure which goes through that. But we're finding that people don't want to support that. They will give their money to the charismatic person who captures their imagination more quickly than they will support a ministry that oversees and builds with depth and with stability and with integrity, an organization. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, again, I'm speaking of our local church, we have a system of checks and balances. We have some things built into our local church that protect us. Did you know that no one can solicit funds in this congregation, not just this one, but any CNMA congregation, it's in our Constitution. You cannot solicit funds without the approval of the church board, the leadership team. That's for protection. That's so that a person who wants to get our money has to come before our board and tell us who they are and what they're doing. And we are not allowed to designate monies within our congregation to any cause that has not been approved by the leadership team or the board of the church. Well, that doesn't mean we exclude things. Again, you saw a video about Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. We've looked at that, we've examined that, and we've said this is a worthy investment. This does what it says it's going to do. Children come to know Jesus Christ. Their lives are blessed by the love of God and And we say to our congregation, it's up to you if you participate, but we have given our stamp of approval on this ministry. We have missionaries outside the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It's not just Alliance missionaries that we recognize God calls. When our young people and and others in our church feel like God is leading them on short-term mission trips, They have to first come before the leadership team and say what they're going to do and why they're going to do it and how God has called their lives and why they want to participate in this before we will release them to appeal to the congregation. And the reason for that is because we want to be behind them as a church family. We want to investigate what they're doing as a leadership team, and know that God's stamp is on their heart and upon the organization or ministry they're going to serve with so that we can say to you with integrity, this is a worthy investment. And you're released to invest in this ministry. Now, you can do whatever you want to do, but there's safety in the authority and the structure of the local assembly. And God, it was it, when it comes to the first fruits of the tithe that we bring to the Lord, it needs to come into that spiritual leadership and oversight of the local assembly so that you can take your hands off of it and release it. We also have policies within our congregation that we will only allow you to designate to those areas that have been approved as designated giving. Besides missionaries and short-term assignments and projects like Operation Christmas Child, 
within the, within the budgetary process, there are some things we don't allow. We don't allow people to designate gifts to ministries that are under the budget of the church. The reason for that, ideally, it should be obvious, I don't think it always is, is say, I have a heart for youth. I have a passion for youth. I want to direct my tithe to the youth ministry. And someone else says, well, I have a passion for children's church, and I want to direct my tithe to children's church. And someone else says, well, I have a passion for the men's breakfast, and I want to support the men's breakfast, and I want Dean to be able to bring people in from, you know, all over the country if he wants to, as special speakers, and I want to give money, and I want my tithe to go for that. Do you realize again what's happening here? You're not surrendering to the Lord. You're controlling. You're according to your preference. You haven't yielded anything. You've just spent your money the way you wanted to spend it. And the consequence of that is the delegated, constituted leadership of the congregation loses the capacity to manage the funds. If that happens with one or two people, it's not disaster. If it happens with two-thirds of the people giving to the budget, it's disaster. How long do you think the youth ministry, the children's church ministry, and the men's breakfast would survive if there was no electricity and no gas? You see? People don't get excited about utilities. <laughs> that doesn't capture their imagination. Oh, wow, I'm giving to utilities. I, I'm supporting ComEd. Isn't that exciting? Well, if you don't support ComEd, our portion of it, it's going to be exciting because we won't have a place to meet. Even if we have got the gas turned on, we can't blow the hot air around in the wintertime. So we're stuck. There's an administration of the care of the local ministry that requires the management of those who have been delegated authority. And so we say to the congregation, here are a list of specials that we have examined. You can support these. And by the way, if any one of you here feels God's call upon their life to be invested in a mission, permanently, long-term, short-term, short-trip, whatever, we welcome you to come and talk to the leadership team and tell us your vision. You're a part of our family. You come from within our own heart and life. We know you. We want to get on board, but we want to go through the process. And we ascribe those approved specials. And then there's the budgeting support of the local congregation that requires the management of the delegated authorities. Else, we run the risk of kind of losing the local base. And so the scripture tells us that when we bring our offering to the Lord, as unexciting as it is, as undramatic as it may be, and I hope it's not that, I hope it is dramatic and exciting and passionate and wonderful, but we lose control when we put it on the altar. We deliver it over to the Lord and the authorities that He has designated. 
and we take our hands off of it. Because it's not ours. It belongs to Him. And it is to be dispersed under His leadership. Now, you say, don't I get to have any kind of say? Well, sure you do. We just had elections a month ago. You elected a new leadership team. They only have a one-year term. That team can turn upside down in a year. That had a pretty significant change this year. You elected deacons. And at our last deacon elder committee meeting, we appointed a subcommittee. They volunteered for the assignment. We appointed a subcommittee of deacons who are going to give oversight to our benevolent ministry. Which is exactly biblical. Comes right out of scripture. And you elected them for a one year term. And you ratify the appointment of elders. And you elect the church leadership team. And so you participate in that as you recognize godly people in our midst to whom you prayerfully delegate the responsibility of spiritual oversight. And you deliver into their hands the ministry of the oversight, including the financial oversight of the church. Now, no one of us has authority or power in that situation. Even though, as I told you by Constitution, I'm designated as the, along with Pastor Hector, as the chairman of the board and the president of the corporation, I can't act independently. The minute I go off as a renegade doing my own thing, the leadership team has the responsibility to rein me in and call me to account. And if I'm not listening, they can call the district superintendent and say, Hey, that guy that you appointed, along with our call to serve in that church, he's gone nuts. Come up here and fix him or get rid of him because he's out of order. I have to operate under the authority, the same authority. And no one on the leadership team has exclusive carte blanche authority. They have to operate under the authority of the body, who is in turn amenable to the congregation. So if your leadership team does something that is not constitutional, or they run off the reservation, you have the opportunity as a congregation to say, time out on the field, Where did you get the authority to do that? Come explain it to us. And if you don't like it, you can call the district superintendent and say, you got a board up here that's gone nuts. (laughs) Come talk to them. Bring them. You see how it works? There is order. There is authority. Because God intends for us to live in community under authority, so that none of us are operating as an island unto ourselves. If you do whatever you please, whenever you please, and you answer to no one, you are not going to grow spiritually very fast. Years ago, Rowena and I were in a church, and I came to a place where in all good conscience I could not give to the local church. I was the assistant pastor, and I couldn't give, and I wasn't giving. We picked out some missionaries we wanted to support, and we were giving our tithe to missionaries. 
And one day I was having a conversation about that with one of my professors who was also a mentor to me spiritually. And I told him, I said, I can't give to my local church because when I give my offering, a percentage of that offering goes to the denomination. And the denomination takes a part of that offering and they support seminaries that do not believe the scriptures, do not believe the miracles of the Bible, do not believe the deity of Christ, do not teach the virgin birth. They're not even 100% sure of the physical resurrection, and their whole doctrine of salvation is skewed because of it. And I can't support that. And his counsel to me was this. He said, you don't have a choice about whether or not you give to your local church. But you do have a choice about which local church you attend. If you cannot in good conscience support the budget and ministry of your congregation, you need to go find one you can. Because you don't have a choice about giving. Your, your discernment with the Lord is where you go and where you're planted. And the, and the local assembly under whose authority you choose to live. But you need to pick a church where you can be confident of the whole ministry. And it was at that time that we left and eventually uh, explored and became a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Because I knew, I knew that every penny I gave, I won't say every dime was used in the best way possible. We all make mistakes. But it was certainly not put to an ungodly purpose. And it did not undermine the, the, the truths of Scripture. And it was primarily invested in expanding the kingdom around the world. And so I went to a congregation where I could give with spiritual peace and with integrity. You know, there's three areas. I'm actually going to be done on time. You may not believe it, but I'm just going to be pretty close. Um, there are three areas in the Bible that God recognizes as a legitimate place for the authorities then to invest the tithe. And those places are, and you're going to have to look these scriptures up this week as you review this and study it, because we can't read them all. The shepherds in ministry of the local congregation, you've all heard the phrase, do not muzzle the ox while he's thrashing. And elders who rule well, especially those who give their attention to preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. The Bible teaches the support of those who, who give their life vocationally to the, the, the teaching and the preaching and the prayer ministry of the church. The scripture recognizes that. And the support of the local church. I've already belabored the point to exhaustion. That if you don't support the local church, nothing else happens. A lot of times people lose sight of that. They say, well, I, I, I don't think we ought to just, I don't think we ought to support the local church because I'm just going to give my money to make sure missions gets accomplished. Friends, the whole ministry of the kingdom is driven from the local church and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in every local body. That's important to see. The local church is the highest organizational structure of authority recognized by Scripture. I remember one time I was standing in line somewhere. I think we were at a buffet or something in the middle of the day of a bunch of meetings. And, and my district superintendent and assistant district superintendent were standing next to me as I was having a conversation with someone else. And, and I made the comment, and I remember because it kind of got a double take, 
I said, you know, we do not exist to serve the district. The district exists to serve the, the interest and focus of the local congregation. Ministry rises out of the local church. And we simply support the district as an extension of ourselves to help us accomplish that. They work for us. You know, it was one of those moments where the, it was overheard and it was like, wow, that's pretty blunt. But that's a fact. Ministry begins here. Ministry here begins here. It begins with your vision. It begins with what God has put on your heart. And as you pray it up and come through the process and appeal to the leadership and say, God's laid this on my heart. I want to do it. How can we get this done? How can we accomplish this? It may be something local, like a backpack bash. It could be something like ministering to a certain group of the population in in the inner city of Chicago that may require several churches to participate together. It may be something that requires 2,500 churches nationwide to come together and support because it's too big for any one of us to do. We, We as a local congregation cannot educate, train, develop, vet, appoint, and support missionaries entirely by ourselves. It has to be a bigger endeavor. Some churches do, but there are thousands of people. We are not able to do that. But by joining hands together as a district and by joining hands together as a national body, we are able to do the kinds of things that the local church cannot do alone. But all the ministry begins here. And the people who go into those roles are called out of the local church. So if we don't exist strong and healthy, everything else falls apart. We are authorized in Scripture to give to the mission of expanding the kingdom worldwide. And as I've said, it's not just the Christian Missionary Alliance. I prayed diligently about whether God wanted me to go with Wycliffe Ministries uh, our hearts were to be Bible translators in those days of, at Tekoa College. And we had just a passion to translate the Scripture. God called me to serve at home. And my testimony is very much like A.B. Simpson's. But I would have gone in a heartbeat to be a Bible translator. And been with Wycliffe Ministries in, in doing that. And uh, so we don't, to the exclusion of any of the other great mission entities. But I want you to know, and I've put this in your hands this morning, that the Christian Missionary Alliance has a great heritage of investing where Christ has not been named. In fact, we have recently pulled most of our paid missionaries out of South America for one reason. South America is largely evangelized. That doesn't mean everyone has come to Christ. But that means in most of the countries of South America, there are strong indigenous national churches. Some of them are even sending their own missionaries. We don't need to pay people to go down there and continue to work alongside the national church when they know their own people far better than we ever could. We need to remove those missionaries and replant them in other parts of the world where Christ has not been named and the gospel has not gone out in power. We're focusing on the Muslim world at this point in time and investing in, 
in mission uh, to nations that are under Islam because they need Jesus Christ. And they're among the most unreached people groups of the world. And so we have redirected our focus because we want to name Christ where he's not been named. We have a video I'd like to share with you this morning that kind of gives a one and a half minute overview of Alliance Mission, if we could see that. Are we queued up and ready to go? Do you need me to hit a mute button or something? Uh-oh, no signal. Oh, there it is. For the past 125 years, Alliance people have been asking, Lord, where would you have us go? What would you have us do? Each time, he has been faithful to direct our steps. In 1884, he led us to the Congo. Today, there are two million Alliance Christians in sub-Saharan Africa. We entered China, which continues to bear lasting fruit. Then Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and his church continues to grow in the Middle East. Then he called us to Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, in which the Alliance churches are now sending their own missionaries. In the Philippines, there are 3,000 Alliance churches, new ones being planted weekly. In Vietnam, over 1 million Alliance Christians are now worshiping their Savior. We continue to seek God for guidance, and He has been true to His Word to grant it. He is raising and equipping a global alliance to reach beyond its borders. Most recently, God has been pointing the way to North Africa and North and Central Asia, considered by many to be the last unreached frontiers for the gospel. God is preparing His church for the return of His Son. He is relentless in His pursuit of lost people, and He is not willing that any should perish. We are privileged that He has invited us to join Him in this task. Be involved. Be devoted. Be light. You know, again, and I... I just want to stress it. I'm not up here this morning to give a company speech. The Christian Missionary Alliance is only one of many very dedicated, very fine ministries. And it's only one of a number of very good mission sending agencies. But one of the things that we have done from the days when A.B. Simpson would weep over the globe that he held in his hand that those people represented by those lands on that globe would hear the message of Jesus Christ. As we have been driven by a passion to win the world for Christ and bring back the King. And we have kept true to that mission, that focus of winning the world for Christ and bringing back the King. And the Bible recognizes that as a valid way to invest our giving And finally, the poor, the widow, and the orphans, and the legitimately needy in the congregation. Both the needy within our own family here, 
and social injustice and poverty all around us is a call of the church. We are to be invested. And we are to prayerfully look for the ministries that God is calling us to right here in our own community. What does he want to do as we are the salt and light where he's planted us? So how do we give? We give consistently, regularly, and proportional, in keeping with our earnings. We give joyfully and glad-hearted with a spirit of gratitude to the Lord. What do you have today that you have not received? Everything you have has been given by God. Is there a heart of gratitude? And we give worshipfully and in faith, recognizing God's provision for today and for tomorrow. The watchword there is, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now that doesn't mean that if you're not cheerful, you don't have to give. What that means is, if you're not cheerful, you need an attitude adjustment. You need to get fixed. You need to have the Holy Spirit examine your heart. You need to find out, why am I grumpy? Why am I miserly? Why am I chinchy? Why do I want to do my own thing all the time? God has given me everything I have. So, God loves a cheerful giver. And if you're not cheerful about it, He wants you to come to terms with Him and let Him change your heart. There are uh, some good study guide questions on the back for discussion uh, with your group. But there's the last question that's meant just for you. And it gives some statistics about our own local congregation that our assistant treasurer prepared for us, not with names, but with unidentified accounts that give some interesting information. And I want to ask you this morning to take that and read it over and give it some thought and some prayer and see if you're where God wants you to be in this whole process. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that You've put a lot of information in your word for us to guide us. We want to be obedient, faithful servants. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.